0: Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 207 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vlodek. And Bobby, we're in the same town.
1: Uh, Welcome back. How was your road trip? Uh, Long. (laughs) (laughs) You rode by yourself? Yeah. so, So we started like way, way Northern Vermont, like basically touching Canada. Um, I drove the girls to Newark, so the first like 320 miles were all of us. And then they flew from Newark to Austin and I kept going. Okay, tell me about your route. Where did you go through? Uh, From Newark, uh, let's see, I took (laughs) I-78 to I-81. is I was, was on I kind of like 81 version of the Californians. Yes, I was on I 81 for a very, 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 very long time from <laughs> through Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, and well into Tennessee.
0: And now, are you, I'm trying to imagine it, are, do you have like all your guilty pleasure music singing at the top of your lungs, or is it podcasts all the time, or are you taking
1: phone calls from reporters or, or donation? I, you know Sunday, so the, uh, the first the first day was this was Sunday, so I didn't do a lot of reporter stuff. Um, I, I went a different route. I had not planned this, but I decided um, somewhere in north in in central Virginia, somewhere around Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, I'm driving past Bobby all the civil war stuff, right? Like I literally drove like you know, past where the northernmost advance of Lee's army. and then you drive past Antietam. And then you drive past the Shenandoah and the Battle of the Blue Ridge. And then it's like, you know what I need? I need a good Civil War podcast. Oh, ooh, ooh, okay. So I I went and pulled up. um, So my former history professor from college, David Blight, who's now at Yale, um, has put online um, lectures from his course um, on the Civil War (laughs) and Reconstruction. That's Um, awesome. And so I just literally started with episode one and crushed all 27 episodes of these amazing <laughs> lectures
0: that's really cool you know i think i've mentioned before what a fan i am of mike duncan's history of rome yep. that yep. truly the progenitor of all great history podcasts um so I, i'll i'll give uh, I mean, David fair,
1: this is not a podcast right this is literally just they took Real his class lectures yeah, right. and yeah. recorded them and put them on the internet even better i like the uh the uh
0: naturalness of that that'll be great I and,
1: and it has sentimental value for me because i had professor blight um gosh t- two and a half times in college so um that's great yeah, This is okay so highly
0: recommended and um if anyone's listening who sort of has the same sort of taste i'd love a good recommendation for a history of china podcast i've i've, mm. I've listened a little bit to those that itunes recommends um I, I'm I'm just curious what people think. What is what is the Mike? Who is the Mike Duncan yes. of history of China? Okay, um, so so, uh, the yeah. route. so
1: 81 to 40, um, I 40 all the way across Tennessee, across the Mississippi into Arkansas. Um, picked up I 30 in Little Rock, mm-hmm. I 30 all the way across southwestern Arkansas through Texarkana into Texas, I 30 all the way to I 630 outside of Dallas. he so you looped around to catch looped I-35 to southbound. Yep. Or I so should say
0: six, I-35 East southbound.
1: So 630 to 20 to 35E e southbound. I love it. This
0: really is like an episode of the Californians. Uh, well, welcome back. Um, Thank you. Just in time for what has finally become the, the, the regular summer temperature. Although even, even with that, I mean, Texas has had the best weather this summer.
1: Yes, I and I got back to Austin heat and to Stage Five COVID. So <laughs> you feel like you drove backwards in time. I mean, in more ways than one. All <laughs> yeah, right, it is. Uh, it's been I, I, it's been tough. And you know, Vermont is the most vaccinated state in the country. So coming from Vermont to Texas, yes, you little have, uh, little, little, little dissonance. It's probably good that you
0: drove. You know, sometimes these changes <laughs> can be jarring if you just fly. Well, um, so what are we going to talk about today? We've got we've got a little bit of uh, classic national security law stuff. We'll talk about these uh, hints and and glimpses we're getting about a potential 2001 AUMF reform. Uh, It's it's a little premature to talk. about. Don't hold your breath. We'll check in on that. Um, we will pivot over to the land of military justice. Um, and you've got some, you've got some recent litigation activity of your own. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm rousing some rabble. (laughs) Rabble rouser you. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, uh, turn as we, as we often need to, uh, to the topic of the pandemia. We will, we'll talk a little bit, um, by way of a backgrounder on Jacobson, which is the big Supreme court case. Steve, is it 1905, I believe? 1905. 1905. Um, from the Supreme Court, which talks about uh, the relationship between the authority of states to compel vaccination or subsidiary entities of states to compel vaccinations versus the rights of the individual who may not want that. And so we'll talk about that a little bit and we'll similarly spend some time with this almost soap opera-esque CDC uh, order, uh, the extension of the, the eviction moratorium. And in the larger sort of mess surrounding how that's unfolding and what is and isn't clear about what the Supreme Court's currently poised uh, to do. So uh, that'll be enough to keep us uh, busy the whole time. And then for frivolity, uh, it's perhaps inevitable we will uh, jointly lament the collapse of the Mets. Maybe uh, maybe talk a few other baseball things and other odds and ends that come up along the way. Uh, and and I, have couple, I have a couple of books that I'm, I'm high on that I want to say some words about. Oh, that's good. And we were, you know, soon we can talk to Ed Lasso, but uh, th- we finally found something again that both of us watch, but I'm not caught up. Uh, but we will be soon because the it's, world
1: it's, a, it, it's once a week, Bobby, come on. <laughs> hey, I, I've, I've been dealing with some other stuff, as you know. Uh, so, uh... so so I'll just say, right, yes. Uh, dear everyone, have some sympathy for what it's like to be an administrator at a public university in a state that doesn't want its public university to have its own choices. It's uh well, I'll just say it's been
0: busy in the fall semester of 2021. I think back in June we just were all hoping and assuming that we could revert back to how things were. It's obviously not going to be that way, and this is going to be a this is going to be a challenging fall. But I, I would say on a happier note, but it's not a happier note. Let's on a more uh, show relevant uh, note, let's talk counterterrorism with reference to the AUMF now. As we've talked about a lot on the show, both the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs, the two Iraq-related AUMFs, seem heading for repeal. And we're not going to kind of go over background again. We'll just note that amidst all the uh, slow path towards repeal of those Iraq AUMFs, we keep getting glimpses of the much more important and and weighty and, and less predictable debate about possible 2001 AUMF reform. That's the post-911 AUMF that's the predicate for operations relating to Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, the Islamic State, and various associated forces thereof. Um, I don't think, Steve, either of us expect that necessarily anything's going to happen. There, There's a new sort of move in the game, though, that we should map so people can follow along if they're not following it closely themselves. And my perception, Steve, is that someone's figured, all right, this can't all be done in one fell swoop. Maybe we could take a preliminary action that would set the table to force Congress and the administration to come to the table on revisions or reform by trying to just get a one shot sunset attached to the AUMF. And, and there's, there's some talk about that. I'm very skeptical that that can be, uh, that can get over the finish line because i think everyone understands that they don't everyone understands they don't want to be forced to the table on this for the most part most it seems like for a long time most legislators and and sometimes the white house would prefer to be able to talk about what they'd like to see but they don't want to be forced to actually do a deal at risk of the amf actually expiring so i'm skeptical anyone's going to get a sunset through but that's a it's a clever legislative move to try to skirt the question of what the reform should look like now and just try to guarantee it'll get litigated. Do you you agree with that? Yep. Okay. So meanwhile, so that's one thing to watch for. A second thing is we are getting little glimpses, including at a hearing before Senate Foreign Relations uh, on the 3rd, so about a week ago, uh, of what the White House is thinking might be as the dance goes back and forth over substantive reform of the AUMF And what I was struck by, I didn't watch the hearing live. So this is based on what was reported afterwards. But um, I'm going to see if I can pull up the exact language. Um, One of the administration witnesses uh, referred to the possibility of a mechanism where the the reformed AUMF would have a mechanism for uh, identification by the administration of additional groups that they will take the position come within the scope of the AUMF. No details here about whether they would try to engineer some kind of pseudo legislative veto mechanism, or if it's more just, which obviously would have constitutional problems, or if instead it's more informational, um, maybe maybe the authority would be granted in a way that just automatically expired. You could name a group. And if you do, you'll get 90 days of authority vis-a-vis that group, but that's it. It That group, it's sunset us to that group, but now Congress is teed up to extend or ratify what you did. Um, all those sorts of details got to get ironed out. But of course, um, this looks familiar, <laughs> as you know, uh, years and years and God, years ago, what, a decade ago, Steve, Uh Matt Waxman, Ben Wittes, Jack Goldsmith, and I wrote something in the in sort of the first wave of AUMF reform proposals suggesting, we, we were proceeding from the position that the AUMF was going to continue to get stretched by presidents of both parties, that no one's going to repeal it, no one's going to read it narrowly, they're going to keep adding associated forces, and to us, the fundamental problem was nobody publicly even knows necessarily what that list includes, so we proposed a, a mechanism like this. You and, and our colleague and friend, Jen Daskal, uh, did not like this idea. No. And we, had, we had a full and frank exchange of views both at, at uh, I think we had a conference at Fordham, I believe, where we had a full and frank exchange of views. And in the pages of Lawfare, we had exchanges. It was all
1: exactly as it should be. Uh, vigorous exchange. Views, views were exchanged. <laughs> views were exchanged. Shots were fired. Um, although, although no one was caned on the floor of the Senate. Yeah, <laughs> This is true. Uh, yes. reference.
0: Um, so what do you, what is your reaction now when you see the administration is talking about this kind of mechanism? And again, we don't know the details, so you can't fully judge it, but
1: given. You really, how- know, you really want to know my reaction?
0: Yes, I do.
1: <laughs>
0: Yawn. Yawn in the sense of that small ball, that's that's like the the appearance of reform without making a substantive difference.
1: Or, I mean, none of this or, is or going is It's just not going to happen, so why should we waste time on the it? The latter. I mean, I'm just like, <laughs> listen, we actually had a president who introduced his own AUMF reform bill. If that didn't go anywhere, you know, seven years ago when the politics were only more conducive to that actually getting through both chambers of Congress. How is anything? I mean, no, just, just stop wasting our time with things that aren't going to happen. Well, is
0: it possible? I, again, I'm not a keen political observer, as, as is obvious from, <laughs> Nor from I comments on the show. No, you have a pretty good nose for this. Um, it, are the internal divisions of the GOP such that maybe there's more of a deal to be done than there was, say, 10 years ago when, when there was a, an overt attempt Uh, There was an actual draft with all kinds of things to say about it. But the politics seem more complex now. And maybe that creates
1: possibilities for weird coalitions that could get this done. I mean, I, I just I don't see the Rand Paul Mike Lee sect as being in any hurry to spend capital on this. And and compared to everything else that they're dealing with right now, I just how you get to 60 votes in the Senate on anything about the AUMF, I just don't see. I think that's probably right. That that ultimately that there there are a number of
0: uh, GOP senators who probably could get interested in something in this space. Um, in fact, we're we're hearing rumblings that's indeed the case with proposals that are floating around. Um, but to get to sixty, it's not clear at all that you can get there. So then it becomes a question of can something get attached? Is the political space available wide enough to attach something? Uh, to the AUM, I'm sorry, to the National Defense Authorization Act in its next round that couldn't get through as a standalone, but maybe because of the, the, the reduced visibility of that, that something could attach, get attached there. Um, I'm a little skeptical. I mean, that's that's certainly, ne- they've never come close to that since 2001, not during that. Also, I mean, I
1: mean SASC already did its markup of the FY22 NDAA. I mean, like that next round now, we're talking FY23, I think. And that's, you know, who knows where we're going to be this time next year.
0: Yeah, unless something came out, unless something was added in during reconciliation. I mean, when conference during committees were yeah. working things out. Yeah, I, I'm doubtful anyone in a position to influence it wants to spend their capital on that. I certainly don't think Mitch McConnell's intending to, to support that.
1: So no, and, and even even I think the Progressive Caucus, I think, is much more interested in military justice reform as an NDAA topic. Than a UMF reform. Yeah, well,
0: what's interesting is we, we've hit this theme a few times now that the Biden administration is. In, there's a contrast between the Obama approach, which talked and in, in wanted to be seen to be trying to do things to roll back uh, the larger footprint of military counterterrorism and and in covert action counterterrorism. I should add, um, and didn't actually make a lot of headway. So it, it got a lot of the symbolism that it wanted, but it didn't actually get a lot of the results. You can argue, and I've been arguing, that the Biden administration's the mirror image, they're actually really not talking about this much. They're definitely not trying to spend political capital on it. it you feel that those veterans of the Obama administration learned their lesson, that that, on the whole, was was more uh, was too difficult. And But instead, they are very quietly doing things, as we've noted, uh, in some cases, and then very loudly doing them in others, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Which, by the way, we we must pause to acknowledge here: the the really terrifying and rapid military gains on the grounds of the Taliban. The Taliban, like, yeah. Three more provincial capitals fell, like in the past few days. Kunduz has already fallen. Um, there was one report uh, claiming that. Revised military projections are talking about maybe 90 days at most before Kabul itself would fall. This is a this, in my opinion, is a total disaster. And that doesn't mean that therefore we should keep doing what we've been doing. But there's there's no way to put a good face on what's happening here to the Afghan people. Um, And then then there's, of course, talk also about uh, a, a more thorough withdrawal from Iraq and you combine all that with the fact that the uh, framework, the, the presidential policy guidance framework governing when, where, and how lethal force might be used for counterterrorism purposes outside of areas of active hostilities, which is now basically everywhere. So this has become the main game. That's, that's all been under review since the beginning of the administration. And, and that pause, though it hasn't precluded all strikes. There was a strike in Somalia the other day. Um, it's, it seems clearly to have pulled things back a fair amount and, and what's sort of, if, if that's the result you want, then what's brilliant about that is no one made a big proclamation that, okay, we're ending the war on terrorism and we're, we're pulling back except for very limited instances. It's just a consequence of a review that's going on. That's continuing to go on. We'll see if they, they don't put a bow on it and, and try to make things more formal, but I can well imagine that many people think that the status quo, many people within the administration may find that the status quo is actually right where they want to be. You don't really get the political hits because you haven't announced this is your considered
1: policy. You just have the framework de facto. So I, brought, in, iner- I mean, but this is, so, this is so often the case, Bobby, in war powers conversations, which inertia is a very powerful force. Yeah. And what's clever about this is they found a way to change
0: the direction of the inertia. So they're... In, in, there was a de facto, a, a real policy change. Just it was framed as a temporary freeze on things while you know, it's the beginning of a new administration. We got to take a close look at all the things the Trump administration was doing. Um, a lot of time has passed, and at a certain point, the, the de facto policy becomes the sustained permanent policy. Again, any day now they may come out. Certainly around September 11th, they may come out with something uh, more formal. But maybe the AUMF reform topic isn't actually what matters maybe this quiet internal policy review is what matters and maybe it gets the administration more or less where they wanted to be in substance without incurring some of the political costs that past experience shows would come from a more overt intervention and circumvents entirely the need to actually reform the amf the catch is the next president may look at it different. Yep. And if you don't change the statute, then, then your changes only last as long as whoever's the president wants them to last. Yep. Interesting.
1: Well, this goes back to the broader conversation we've had before about sort of the very slow pace of broader structural reforms, you know, that so many of us thought were were clearly um, impelled by the, the Trump administration.
0: Yeah, I continue to be sort of stunned and feel kind of naive to be stunned um, that there weren't any number of things that for which they're at least on a, on a policy basis, not politics, that's different, but policy mm-hmm. basis, there ought to have been bipartisan agreement to tighten up any number of sort of good government rule of law type considerations. Um, but no, there didn't seem to be any appetite for that. Okay. Well then we should leave that realm entirely and turn to the realm of military courts and military justice um, Speaking you're, of, you're, of, 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 of rousing rabble. <laughs> Speaking of keeping our listeners' attention, <laughs> uh, this ought to grab them. All right. So what's going on? What's this business with unanimous juries or not so unanimous juries? Yeah, here
1: I go again. I'm causing trouble. Um, so the folks might recall that last um, April, um, the Supreme Court in a case called Ramos versus Louisiana um, incorporated, Bobby, there's a con law concept for you. Um, (laughs) incorporated against the states the so-called unanimity requirement of the Sixth Amendment, a requirement the Supreme Court had long read into the Sixth Amendment. It's not there expressly, Um, requiring that convictions in criminal cases be unanimous. Um, Louisiana and Oregon were the last two states to actually allow for non-unanimous convictions, although both, well, one was 10 to 2, I think maybe the other one might have been 11 to 1. But um, And Ramos says, nope, you must all have unanimous convictions. So that left as the only jurisdiction in the entire country with non-unanimous convictions, the military, ah. uh, which has really since the founding, Bobby, not required unanimity for court-martial convictions unless the sentence was death. Um, is, is it typically a ten a ten two or an eleven one? So before 2016, it was actually not typical. Before 2016, there was a lot of variation in the size of what the the panel, the military clone of the jury, um, and the the threshold. So the rule before 2016 was two thirds of the members. So it could be six to three if you had a nine member panel. Um, the one of the reforms of the Military Justice Act of 2016 was to try to standardize the practice across. The whole military. So now, for a general court-martial, that is to say, for serious but non-capital offenses, the typical panel size is eight, and the conviction threshold is three fourths, so six to two. Um, and for a special court-martial, so for more misdemeanor-like offenses, typical panel size is four, so three fourths is three to one. Um, so um, we, I'm now working with uh, some really good lawyers in the Air Force, uh, Captain Ryan Cernovich. Um, first and foremost, um, to try to sort of get the military to address whether the non-unanimous conviction rule of the military survives Ramos. Um, and so we, we have a case pending now in the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, which is unfortunately known by the acronym AFSICA, um, I said. Uh, a case called U.S. versus Martinez, where you have a guy who was convicted of really civilian wire fraud offenses, Um, So the kind of stuff that at the founding would not have been tried by the military at all. Um, Right. Um, And the claim is that um, both in general and as to his offenses specifically under Ramos, he's entitled to uh, a unanimous conviction. So uh, I'm curious
0: about your, the sort of interpretive methods you're going to bring to bear in this uh, context. All of them. So I love that you said that because you and I are both in a matter of weeks Two weeks from today Steve and I are each teaching sections of constitutional law to first-year law students heading to Texas law and uh, one of the core jobs when you're teaching con law to one else or, or otherwise uh, is to make sure people understand the panoply of different interpretive methods that are sort of in the in the toolbox in the American legal tradition Um and I think that one thing that students need to understand is it's it's one thing to, to dwell on your preferred methods as a personal matter, and as a matter of policy and, and in the academic setting. If you're actually litigating on behalf of a client where your duty of zealous advocacy makes your priority first and foremost to actually win your case, um, bring to bear all the methods you can plausibly bring to bear that cut in your favor or can be made to Seem to cut in your favor. That's no time. Your your duty to your client is is uh, going to preclude you from saying, yeah, you know, I'm just I'm just not down with originalism, so I'm not making original <laughs> or, or living constitutionalism, etc. Go on around the horn. Use them all. Uh, so there's a little uh, practice tip.
1: So, so I'll just say, I mean, I mean, uh, I've tweeted out the brief so folks can read them for themselves. It's it's interesting because our argument is a little more nuanced. That I think is commonly understood. And, and if I may say, then I think the government's opposition portrays it as. Um, so, right, the government portrays our argument as because of R- Ramos basically says that the Sixth Amendment now applies to the military, and therefore, so does the unanimous, unanimous jury requirement. Um, that's not our argument at all. The argument is actually that CAF, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, has already held, Bobby, that service members have a Sixth Amendment right to an impartial. Panel. Um, even though they don't have a right to a panel, it's, even though right, there's, there's no freestanding constitutional right to a jury trial if you're a service member. That's the, that's the linchpin of the modern military justice system. But Kath has said: because Congress has chosen to provide a jury-like system, that jury-like system brings with it some rights. Um, right? And so our argument is that it's that hole-in that does the work, right? That once you get to a, a world. In which Cath has said that con- ordinary Sixth Amendment concepts of impartiality and fairness, right, also apply in the military system. You can't then not follow Ramos because Ramos ties the, unanim- the unanimity requirement to fairness, right, to, to impartiality and fairness. Interesting. So yeah, so the, uh, the it was
0: the formula kind of kicks in in effect at that point.
1: Yeah, but it's, it's just, it's a more modest. So we're not trying to argue that the Sixth Amendment all of a sudden should apply in all ways, shapes, and forms to a court-martial. The argument is that insofar as the Court Appeals to the Armed Forces has already held that the Sixth Amendment's requirements of impartiality and fairness apply to court-martial panels, Ramos makes clear that those requirements include unanimous convictions.
0: So it's, it's basically the transitive property.
1: Right, and so the, the big cap case is called Lambert. So Lambert plus Ramos equals Martinez. That's our.
0: <laughs> I knew, I knew those elementary school
1: like tr- the
0: transitive property is. I knew that would come in handy someday. it Finally, did now I understand There's, this.
1: there's a whole lot in one of the in Lincoln in the Spielberg movie Lincoln. Uh-huh. Right in one of his cabinets. My my favorite scenes in that movie are the cabinet scenes.
0: I am and- cloaked. With awesome, is it awesome power? He says.
1: Yes, um, he looms his arms up as only lanky people can. But no he also bother. does like he also does the whole like um, Euclid, right? You know, I I didn't, you know, um, one of his postulates, right? Um, things that are equal to each other are equal to themselves, right? I was like, that's the transitive <laughs> property, Euclidean.
0: Yeah, was I, oh man, I think I may have been offering the wrong label earlier. It's one of those mathematical
1: properties. No, it's transitive. Yeah, if yeah, yeah if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals a C, equals that's the transitive C. property. Yeah yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, right, it, it transitions. Math major. Uh,
0: Daniel Day-Lewis uh, Day- is Lincoln, one of the all-time great performances. I love that movie. Yeah, it's a good one. Um should we pivot? Should we shall we take our attention over to pandemia and so one uh,
1: more just one more note? So, yeah, so, so the briefing is all in. So the next step is for the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals to decide one, is it going to hear oral argument at all? Because it doesn't usually. And two, is it going to sit on Bonk? Because we've asked them to do both. Uh-huh. Um, so
0: all that'll right, be she- the
1: next step. And then one other footnote in the universe of me causing trouble for the military justice system. Um the DC circuit has scheduled argument in Larrabee for Friday, October twenty second. You know, Steve, you're
0: like you're like the sand in the oyster, generating pearls. Got it. You got to have an irritant in there to get the pearls. I don't know. The pearls so far are government victories. So <laughs> that, that's true. They, they, the pearls don't end up being quite what you were looking for. um Well, pearl, pearl, pearlishness is in the eye of the beholder. The, can we turn that into a show title? That's a candidate. Uh, Let's talk about Jacobson because- ah, I, Jacobson, that old chestnut. Yeah, that is, it truly is an old chestnut because this, this is a 1905 case, as I said earlier, decided by the Supreme Court that continues to be the, the main, most relevant case the courts decided on the question of, do you have individual constitutional rights that can uh, provide a basis not to have to obey an attempt- by a local government, in this case, the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, and its board of health, um, to require you to get vaccinated. Now, here it was early 20th century, around 1902. There's a smallpox outbreak in Cambridge, uh, and the board of health issues a requirement for all adults to be vaccinated. Notably, and it's emphasized in the opinion, um, you don't go to jail for disobedience. There's a five dollar fine, which was you know um, not it was a lot more time value of money, or the, the value of money back then. that was a weighty fine, but it was it was five dollars. Um, and Jacobson did not want to get vaccinated on the ground. Uh, it was Henning Jacobson. Henning didn't want to get vaccinated because there he'd had an earlier he or she had had an earlier vaccination and had a bad reaction to it. So it sort of like f- feared for the health effects. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, sorry, the, despite your, uh, what I would describe in modern terms as a substantive due process liberty claim involving bodily integrity and, and autonomy over health decisions involving your own body, which, not questioning that that's a category, but saying that that must give way to uh, reasonably non arbitrary public health decisions. Fighting pandemics, and, and the, the, the opinion is a classic endorsement of the of the strength of the core elements of the states' so called police powers, which in the traditional formulation are the the still sovereign authorities of the states to make rules uh, for health safety. Uh, it used to be the formulation of health safety, welfare, and morals. Um, the morals part has come under question in more recent years, but the the health part has always been a, a really robust central foundation for it. And I think if you asked anybody b- before the current pandemic, you said, what's a good example of where the, the authority of the state is at its maximum? I think a lot of people might have included the authority to impose vaccinations amidst a, a, a full real deal pandemic if there's an effective vaccination with caveats for as applied case-specific exemptions where there's actually a sound basis beyond Henning just said, I had a bad reaction last time to some vaccination. But in actual, you know, the the medical evidence is this might kill me. Um, So Jacobson has sort of stood out there as a really strong, the government can make you get a vaccination just as the government at the federal level can draft you and put you into a war and all sorts of other things that are dramatic impingements on what would normally be your autonomy and your individual
1: liberty. Um, Steve, is is this still good law? So, you know, good question. Um, The short answer is yes. Um, The longer answer depends on what it is. So, you know, Lindsay Wiley and I wrote a piece for the Harvard Law Review last summer that teed this up um, and, and the Supreme Court has, has helped follow suit. So, you know, there's a lot of language in Jacobson that is often cited for the proposition that, if anything, judicial review is supposed to be more deferential in the context of a public health emergency. Um, and, Bobby, I think that part of Jacobson, even if it was good law at the time, and Lindsay and I explain why we think that has been overread, right, why in the context in which Justice Harlan wrote it, that's not what he meant. Um, but even if that's what it stood for, that I think is no longer a good law. Like the notion that we are more deferential to governments during public health emergencies than other types. No, but so let me just pause there. Cause that sounds just like sort of the boumedian ish
0: arguments about, Hey, it's national security context. There's a military right. setting. There, there needs to be national security deference on legal interpretations. And then the counter argument is, no, no, that, that, that just means that in the, uh, Analysis, government interests are at their maximum and need to be treated as such, but 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 that doesn't mean the government gets to
1: win. This is an individual rights claim, so we need to have strong pushback as well. So this is the point that Lindsay and I made last summer, right? Which is, you know, a better reading of Jacobson is to put it in context. And the context here is fascinating. Jacobson Bobby has decided three days, three days. Before Lochner is arguing. Right. It's a total Lochner case, right,
0: right. in the thick of that period where they weren't using tears of scrutiny as their
1: verbiage and framing, but where they were thinking about what are and what are not permissible exercises of the police power. Um, exactly. and, they, and they took, very obviously, Lochner, this is an area in which court was
0: taking very seriously the idea that there's limits on what the state can do, Correct. and you really
1: have to take account for individual liberties. So this is what Lindsay and I wrote last summer, which is that properly understood Jacobson is still good law for the proposition that protecting public health is a legitimate, if not compelling, governmental interest um, that has to be sort of properly weighted when you have an individual rights claim and that that includes, at least in Jacobson, compulsory vaccination. Now, where things, I think, got a bit off kilter with Jacobson is that you know, governors and other sort of and states were using it as justification for all kinds of COVID-related restrictions that went well beyond vaccination.
0: It's like it's a blank check to right. you know, for for governments to impose all sorts of liberty infringements. And, and, and the Supreme Court, standards. I think,
1: put the kibosh on that in November. So in the short procurium opinion in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo, the court goes out of its way to say Jacobson doesn't stand for that proposition. But Justice Gorsuch, in his concurrence, in that case. What I was going to say that's not to say Jacobson doesn't mean some important things and he specifically says compulsory vaccination that's fine. <laughs> right. So
0: how about this this sort of let me let me attempt a modern translation or modern doctrine restatement of Jacobson yeah. cuz Lochner goes down in flames in in the late 30s but Jacobson did not. Just no. as Meyer and Pierce did not. So we're getting in the weeds there. But there's all sorts of stuff from the the Lochner era, that is under the heading of substantive due process and, and robust liberty protection, that fully that that fully survived and and made its way into the modern era. There's no reason to think Jacobson isn't sh- shouldn't be taught maybe in that same context. Uh, so we might say in modern terms, what Jacobson is telling us is that yes, it's a strict scrutiny scenario where the state is making you take an injection because bodily integrity, discretion over medical decisions. However, the government's got a compelling government, at least when you have a properly predicated pandemic context, you've got a compelling government interest. If, if it's a vaccine that's generally responsive to the pandemic uh, and the tailoring is probably satisfied. And in that case, as to those facts, it might be strict scrutiny or something like it. But it's okay. The the government's actions upheld, and so when you get modern cases of the same general variety, you just got to look what's what's the nature of the government's interest in light of that that uh, health threat, and what's the what's the apparent efficacy of the vaccine.
1: So I guess I, I don't. I, I'm not sure I would concede that it gets strict scrutiny. I mean, so Lindsay and I have a new, very long post for Lawfare that's going to be up Thursday morning that walks through this in a little more detail. Ah, it, it's not clear to me that even an aggressive reading of Roe, right, yields strict scrutiny for laws that interfere with bodily autonomy. Um, and, and, you know, in that universe, I'm not sure that it's, well, I'm not sure it matters, Bobby, because I agree with you that I think a properly tailored vaccination mandate survives strict scrutiny. But I also not, I, I don't want to go with the ghost that it is strict scrutiny. Um, there's a fascinating opinion by Frank Easterbrook um, from, a couple, from a couple weeks ago in the Indiana University case, I don't know if you saw this, Bobby. I but did the, not. No. So Indiana University, eight um, IU students sued to challenge IU's compulsory vaccination mandate. Now, let me let me say it was not the IU's rule was not that every student had to get vaccinated. It was that if you didn't get vaccinated, you had to meet various other protocols, right? Constant um, testing, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and IU's rules had, Bobby, both medical and religious exemptions. Right, we didn't mention right. that, but that's that's clearly part of how the tailoring would, would And so work. this is so Easterbrook, right? Easterbrook, no fan of, you know, government mandates, right? No fan. Of, so Easterbrook goes out of his way in this very short opinion to say this is a much easier case than even Jacobson. Because in Jacobson, Cambridge was requiring every single adult to get vaccinated with yeah, no, exceptions, no exceptions. Yeah. Right. And in Cambridge, that was just to be a, an adult in Cambridge, That right? This was not for the privilege of attending a university. Yeah, right. And so so Easterbrook, in four pages, I think just does totally away with um, an argument that a properly tailored vaccination mandate raises constitutional problems. It just that, doesn't.
0: That's. I think that makes total sense.
1: Did he address the level of scrutiny and engage that at all? He says, I think it's a rational basis, but even if it were higher, it would survive. Yeah, okay. So I look I think that's the critical point I was trying to get at like even if you if you
0: dial up the liberty interest to its maximum on a theory that compulsory medical treatment should be viewed that way, you nonetheless I think un- undoubtedly under these circumstances both with the smallpox vaccination then and with our vaccines today in light of COVID you undoubtedly should survive, you being the government. The government's mandate should survive that challenge as long as you've got the right kind of exceptions to deal with um, the unique individual's circumstance where there's a health
1: risk or right. so, ha- so, perhaps a religious... Right, so, so the one part of Jacobson that I doubt is good law, right, is the notion that this mandate would, that a vaccination mandate without a religious exemption would survive, um, right? That's That's where I think it's trickier Um, because of the more recent Supreme Court cases about the sort of the so-called most favored nation theory of the free exercise clause. So I just, what Easterbrook's opinion drives home, Bob, is I think there's a difference between how even conservative judges, I mean, let's, you know, Frank Easterbrook is no liberal, right? Um, Between how conservative judges look at things like business closure orders and restrictions on religious gatherings, right, which they've been very skeptical of, and one jab in the arm. Um, right. That that compulsory vaccination, although it may seem to many like more of an affront on liberty, I think comes across to many of these judges as actually, if not less of an affront than a more defensible, you know, a, a more defensible one off thing.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I guess um, probably we're not likely to see some serious engagement with the question of is, is this version of bodily integrity or or control over medical decision making? is this a fundamental right? Do you have a fundamental right? everyone's right just going to think.
1: assume that it is. I mean, so so it's interesting because the there's an application pending on the Supreme Court in the Indiana University case on the shadow docket, because of course there is. Of course, um, that's, that's all right. there is. <laughs> and, and the way that the, I think Jim Bopp is the lead lawyer, and the way he framed it, right, is, you know, this case is all about the fundamental right to bodily integrity. And it's ironic that as the court also has before it a case asking for it to overrule Roe, because no such right exists, right? All of a sudden, <laughs> it's, here's it's not hard,
0: not hard to see where someone would be able to articulate a distinction,
1: uh, and we, oh, may, we I, may. I think. That. I mean, Lindsay and I in our post walk through why we think one can believe that there is a right to bodily autonomy protected by the due process clause, and why a properly tailored vaccination mandate does not infringe that right yeah that's where i was going yeah, I, I i that's so that's that sort of Lindsay in my bottom line as well
0: so uh um turning attention to eviction moratoriums which are very much an example of a uh, at least a, a public health measure that is very different from compulsory vaccinations um here we've got statutory concerns sort of looming largest but not not exclusively so so let's can what's the best way to come to grips with the, the legal nature of the moratorium and where is it vulnerable and where is it maybe not as
1: vulnerable as people seem to assume so uh, let's start with words not as vulnerable as people seem to assume um, and that's the Constitution <laughs> um, right. right I mean, like the you know con- the I'm the, the, not not all conservative Twitter but much of conservative legal Twitter right has been up in arms for the last week at what they claim is this massive power grab this un- this violation of the oath. By President Biden because he's pursuing this unlawful and unconstitutional eviction moratorium. Like um, uh, Eugene Kontorovich, right, wrote not bad for Fox News about how you know this is just you know this is proof positive that we're all hypocrites because we don't actually progressives don't actually criticize Biden when he does the things that we criticize Trump for. Never mind that the eviction moratorium was initially a Trump policy. But I but I digress. Um, so. The, Let's have one important
0: government. point that a lot of people who didn't pay attention to before do need to understand. So the the first ver- this there's been many versions of it. It began as a Trump administration action in, in the earlier days of the pandemic. Uh just to real quickly unpack like what the f- the constitutional issue e- even could be, because it's obvious what the statutory interpretation question yes. is. Yes. Is yes. this That's a easy. proper exercise of of that aspect of Title 42? Is right. it section two sixty four, I believe? It um, is. Well done. So so setting that aside, um I can imagine someone saying, "Hey, there's a there's a th- if it is a proper exercise, there is a non-delegation doctrine problem here, which of course is is a favorite recurring topic. Is is the non-delegation doctrine creeping back into existence? Might this be a case where it, where it could be? Is this is this a sufficiently articulated delegation? Um, setting that aside, on the theory that really the non-delegation doctrine currently doesn't have that kind of bite, um, is there any other?" Is there any other constitutional question, for example, are, is anybody claiming that this is an infringement of the fundamental rights of the landlords who are being squeezed?
1: So the two arguments, the two arguments that are made, both of which I think are, are squarely foreordained by precedent, are that it's a taking um, and that it's a violation of the contract clause. Um, so the contract clause, speaking of cases you and I both teach in con law, um, there's a case square almost squarely on point that says the government's allowed to adjust <laughs> housing in an so,
0: emergency. So right, so Blaisdell the, the Minnesota mortgage moratorium case is the you know as most people teach it as I teach it and probably you do too is sort of like like kind of the breaking of the back of the old contracts clause. Um, yep. And in that I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing it, but descriptively But it's an old
1: thing. It's from 1934. <laughs> it's, a, it's
0: a Great Depression thing where where up until that point Generally speaking, the Contracts Clause, which was, it's very interesting, the original text of the Constitution, pre-Bill of Rights, did have things that categorized as as rights. And one of them, so you've got some ex post facto stuff, you've got habeas, and you had the Contracts Clause precluding states from altering the terms of existing private contracts. Um, And for a long time, that was a thing that had real teeth. Um, Not so much in Blaisdell, where in in the conditions of in, of unrest where in neighboring states there had been organized violence the uh, militia had been called out the national guard had been card out called out to suppress it as uh debt relief efforts trying to prevent farm foreclosures had led to violence minnesota decides to intervene and alter the terms of foreclosure with a specific eye towards the problem in the agricultural heartland and foreclosures there so farm aid type stuff um, and and it was clearly a, a major impact on the uh, the debt holders, the banks, and the lenders. Really, I think pretty clearly the sort of thing that the the founders had actually intended, the had actually and in a particular way intended the contracts clause to prevent, because the founders. In in no small part, we're thinking about Shays' Rebellion and drafting and adopting that language. Uh, Shays' Rebellion, in short, was sort of just what we just described, Um, a foreclosure revolt, an armed revolt against foreclosures. And uh, the court said, look, Charles Evans Hughes wrote, We understand things, especially in the thick of the Depression, about the larger spillover societal effects of taking a strict hard line on contract enforcement in these kinds of circumstances. It's too costly. So to me, it's a classic example, maybe one of the most teachable examples of the method of originalism being trumped by justices who want to instead focus on changing understanding and changing needs. And some people love it for that reason and some people hate it for that reason. But, But it seems to have gutted a lot of the the traditional
1: approach to the contract clause. Well, there's a larger problem here, which is this is a federal moratorium and the contract clause only applies to right. states. So then you have to then you have to map it over to uh, what
0: that takes us to Fletcher v. Peck, right? Uh, in a an in indirect way because the other earlier cases um, in the in the early 19th century when Fletcher was v. Back, back on our podcast. I been Calder v. Bull and Fletcher V. Peck and all my yeah. friends would to be like, oh, he loves talking about this stuff. Um, these cases that would reach when when the contract's clause wasn't directly on point, uh, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because in Calder v. Bull it wasn't a contract, it was a it was a will situation. Or in any event, maybe when one of the justices, and I'm looking at old Justice Johnson here, who was always wanting to beat this drum. Justice Johnson. Um, Turn to natural law and say, anyways, the Contracts Clause is in effect like a manifestation of a larger natural law protection for vested property interests. Uh, and and by extension, you know, federal action maybe could be reached in the same way. But of course, we don't talk natural law anymore in our in our case law. It's all substantive due process and liberty and protection for property substantively. So you kind of end up in that same sort of space. And the point of all this, rambling, aside from just warming up for the semester to come, is that um, there, there's a lot of leeway for governments in general to intervene in contract relationships. We saw this during the recession. Um, so that doesn't strike me as a fruitful path for a substantive due process type or procedural due process type argument for the landlords here. And and if you try to pivot instead to more of a Lochner style framing, that obviously has its own problems. So, um, I think the, Federal constitutional issues aren't where the game is. I understand that no politically, people talk that way, but that's not where the action is. Statutory interpretation now that gets pretty interesting, right? How do you, how do you feel about this as an interpretation of the of the little catch all clause at right. the end of Section two sixty four? After all the stuff about controlling the interstate spread of animals and such, right?
1: So Section two. I mean, let's be clear. Section two sixty four. It's actually. Its public law number is Section 361 of the Public Health Service Act of 1944, That's codified at 42 U.S.C. 264. Um, Bobby, this has always been the CDC's hammer, right, for a big public health crisis. Like, everyone understands that the CDC's power to actually take aggressive steps to deal with the national public health crisis is 264A. Um, and, and, you know, that's not a secret. That's not new. That's been part of all the planning and research and writing for decades. Um, what's weird about the statute is it is 77 years old and not very specific. And so in addition to talking about preventing the spread of communicable diseases from foreign countries or from one city to the others, right, it has this specific list of specific things that the government can do about inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals, etc., cetera, right, and other measures as in the government's judgment may be necessary. And there's what, it's, uh, is it nospeter associus. Them terms be understood by the company. Know them,
0: the by, know them by their associates. Right. Um, oh God, what if
1: that's applied to us? Well, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, you're screwed. So, <laughs> you know, I, I want to be as clear as possible. I think it is a, cl- I think the eviction moratorium is a close call under 264A because in general, no, I would not think an eviction moratorium meets this criteria. But where the government has clear data supported its conclusion that throwing tens of thousands of people out onto the streets is going to increase the spread of a communicable disease, I think you could make the case that that's covered by 264A. The critical point is, well, there are two points here. One is how the Biden administration has bungled this, and the other is how critics of the Biden administration have um, hyperventilated over this. So um, the, the best thing to read on this is what Jack Goldsmith wrote for Lawfare, um, on Monday called yep. The Anatomy of a Screw-Up, the Biden Eviction Moratorium. Stop- and, uh, you know, when Jack is right, he's really right. And I think almost every word of this piece is spot on. Here's what's happening. So there was the original Trump eviction moratorium. And that was set to expire at the end of June. That got pushed back to in um, the end of July. A group called the Alabama Association of Realtors um, sued to block the eviction moratorium. And they won in the district court, on Bobby, on the ground that it was ultra-virus, that it was in excess of the CDC's authority under Section 264, not on any of these more hysterical, constitutional, tyrannical government grounds. Um, and they won in the district court, but then the district judge stayed his own ruling, um, recognizing that the consequences in the short term of allowing that rule to go into effect might be more harmful than, you know, leaving it on, leaving the moratorium in place pending appeal. Um, The D.C. Circuit refused to lift the stay. So the Alabama Associated Realtors went to the Supreme Court and asked it to lift the stay. And the court, by a five to four vote, said no. But Justice Kavanaugh wrote this very important one paragraph concurrence where he said, I actually think I agree with the district judge that the moratorium is unlawful, but because the government says it's going to be over in a month, I'm not going to vote to lift the stay. Right. Um,
0: and then the parenthetical about if if Cong- if they if this needs
1: to be done, Congress needs to do it expressly by okay. legislation. So the Biden administration. So Biden sort of th- the new moratorium is not the old moratorium. Right. The new moratorium is narrower. Right. Um, That's some- almost nationwide. Just blanket. Right. This the one new is one is about figures. high, high covid areas. Yeah. Right. They're like the, defi-
0: the defined in a way. I guess it's at the time was 80 percent of the country is probably more than that now.
1: But, it, but at least there's like at least it's not like you know where the whole idea is that in the area in which you live is that is it dramatically increasing the risk of spread to kick you out of your house No that's right um, and, I, and I
0: think that tailoring is an important part of figuring out whether this was a plausible interpretation of the generic grant of authority
1: in the statute. and let's keep in mind right that, that, that all we have on this from the Supreme Court is one paragraph by one justice right The other eight justices did not write to explain their views in that case. I think that a lot of people just assumed
0: that Kavanaugh was somehow speaking for the other four justices, um, and thus that there's a majority who feels exactly as he did. And there may be, but as Jack wrote,
1: We don't know that. You can't assume that. That may not be the case. Hello, shadow. I mean, hello, shadow docket. Like, it's almost like it's a problem for the Supreme Court to be doing this really important stuff in cryptic and difficult to parse ways. Somebody should write about that. Someone should write a book, okay? I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, to make a long story short, um, the Biden administration, Biden himself bungled this. Because he came out and said, yeah, the Supreme Court said what it said, but we're going to do it anyway. Well, it was I'll worse, think. right? He's like,
0: you yeah, know, I've been hearing a lot about how this apparently isn't constitutional or something. I I forget exactly how to put it. But he basically said, like, yeah, apparently, apparently this is not OK, but there's at least – one person, <clears throat> we, we know who, but there's at least one outside law professor who told me maybe, I don't know, maybe it might work. And so okay. let's do it and just see what the courts right. say. And that, awesome. I think, is really fairly criticized as eroding norms of
1: we should all actually care about whether what we're doing is legal. So two things. First, even taking what he said literally, never mind that we've been yelled at for four years about you know not taking the president's words literally, even taking those words literally, Right. It is not an act of sort of executive branch departmentalism for the president to say, let's give the Supreme Court a chance to like, I'm going to I'm going to force the court to rule on this. Right. right like, yeah, I'm not saying he's saying it all that like he gets to decide it. In no, his- but this is how it's been portrayed. Like this yeah. is my problem. I, I, I'm not saying by you. This no, is no, not- I, I'm making the point. I, so I want to make the, I think, more defensible
0: point that this is similar. It reminds me of something. Was it was Orrin Hatch who at one point had said something about what they were doing vis-a-vis Guantanamo? Some piece of legislation. at Some point. We said I don't know if it's constitutional. But that's what the courts are going to figure out. Arlen Specter. It, it was a specter. Okay. So in both cases, the the members of the other branches overtly saying that look, it's not my job. To figure yeah, out if this right. is legal or not, I can just do what I want to do, and then the courts will strike down what they need to strike down. That, to me, is a uh, a bad practice. Okay, so That's listen, how you agree. I agree.
1: I agree with that. The president has an independent obligation to do things that he believes right. My point is just yeah, he from has a duty. A, right. My point is just from a process matter. Right. This is not like the Supreme Court ruled against him and he did it anyway. Right, like this is, right. This is Biden saying. Yeah, that's right.
0: That's right. There's, there, we don't actually. Er, everyone's wrong who thinks that it's clear what the Supreme Court's position here is. It's not yet
1: clear. There's, there's, a, there's some bad indicators for the administration. But I also but think, but I, but I also think that Bobby, I think any president is allowed to force the court to issue that decision. Like I, you know, a president who genuinely believes that something has to be done and believes that there is an argument in defense of its legality, right? I think he is not violating his oath if he does it subject to the recognition that the Supreme Court's going to have the last word, right? If he's not outrightly defying the Supreme Court.
0: where Where is that position? I want to make sure I understand it in relation to Dellinger's um, sort of, look, if it's clear what the Supreme Court thinks, you need to conform to that.
1: So uh, this I, I talk about this in Conwell law, right? What does it mean to be bound by the Supreme Court, right? Um, and I think the question is, is there any reasonable argument? that what you're doing is going to be upheld by the Supreme Court. And this is where I go back to Jack's piece. Like, Jack is right, right? The Supreme Court, yes, we all might have our suspicions based upon the shadow docket wrong But given what the standard was for relief in that case, I don't know how anyone could say, I, you know, there's no reasonable argument that, Bobby, a different moratorium, a more right. tailored moratorium Issued at a time when cases are back up on the rise, right? Is somehow governed by Kavanaugh's one paragraph concurrence? No, clearly not. Right, like that to me is much.
0: E- the actual case we're dealing with here is a yeah. much easier case because we don't have a clear. We do not know what the majority of the court thinks on this. I'm yelling. And at you. this circumstance is it's not the same order. So that that I think is common ground. I but, think if we, if we yeah. changed it to where it was the same fact pattern more right. or less, and it was clear of the majority. Had, had said before, then it becomes a much more aggressive claim. Yeah, so listen,
1: it, listen. If, if there had been a procurative opinion as opposed to a one justice concurrence that said we are all of the view that Section two sixty four does not authorize the CDC to to to, to, to interfere with yeah. residential evictions, and if he said right?
0: like, well, I think that might be wrong,
1: I'm going to tee it up,
0: and then at least for a while we'll get the benefit of it, that's a problem.
1: Agreed. I, I would be the first person saying, you know, you're doing exactly what we've accused, you know. okay. But that's not this. I thought we agreed about that. That's good. But that's not this. That's my point. I agree. And I agree with you there. Okay. So we're going to have a fight now about the scope of Section 264. I think it's a close call. I have my own suspicion about how it's going to go if and when it gets to the Supreme Court. My only point is this is not this massive offense to the rule of law that the president's critics are making it out to be. This is a, they blew it. I mean, the Biden administration totally blew the messaging on this. And I'm, you know, Jack is absolutely right about that. But that does not make their legal arguments weaker. So, so I,
0: yeah, I, I haven't followed enough of the, like what types of claims people are making. I, I just have my own view, we just related. But what do you think ultimately is going to happen when it, let's assume that this eventually gets to its final merits determination well, let me throw in one more wrinkle. I don't know the ins and outs of this precisely, but I have the impression that there was an effort, or at least there was exploration of getting legislation to moot the issue. Because Congress has, in fact, on several occasions done this legislatively. So we've yep. had this back and yep. forth. Some of it's been legislative, express extension of the moratorium, and some of it's had to be done by the CDC under this contested power. If it's the case that Congress pondered, and ultimately decided they, they couldn't get this through for whatever reason, does this have, does this weaken the CDC's position? Does it, is it, is it like some kind of analogy to steel seizures where even though it's statutory interpretation, it's, it's a version of being in category three, or does it not matter since we're talking about statutory interpretation, not inherent article two powers?
1: So I think, I think, the modern court, Bobby, right, would be would be in, and has been skeptical of reading too much into congressional inaction, um, to a greater degree than certainly Frankfurter and Jackson were in Youngstown. Right, so you, couldn't, you couldn't. So you
0: wouldn't assume that the current court would look at congressional inaction here, or for that matter, the instances right. of action, and say, ah, we can infer that Congress doesn't think its own earlier statute confers this authority. In fact, I would go further and say. It's pretty obvious since there's been this back and forth with executive action by the CDC, then yeah. some direct congressional action back and forth. They seem to be aware this interpretation could occur, they don't seem to be bothered by it. They intervene some on their own to settle the issue. Um, I'm not saying it's full post hoc ratification of the interpretation, but it's it hints in that direction at least as much as it hints in the opposite direction,
1: right? I mean, it's a wash, in other words, right? But 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 I, I think so. It wouldn't shock me, right? If the bottom line here is that we end up with the new moratorium blocked um, on the ground that it exceeds CDC statutory authority, my only point is like that is not a constitutional crisis. (laughs) Okay, I have two points, and you know the shadow docket is not where we should be having this conversation. Yeah,
0: so I I think that's right. I think not to try to fully rehabilitate those who are you know sounding the gong of tyranny, but I do think that when we look at the very, very loose language of 264's concluding clause, which is what this all hangs on, it's sort of a such other measures. Um, I don't think this action by the CDC, based on the data that's been put forward, as you say, I don't think this means, gosh, if you can do this, then there's nothing the CDC can't do. Um, But I do think it's healthy in general to look at Expansive interpretations yeah. of really broad catch-all clauses, and say, and ask the question: Hold on, if, if this is authorized, how much of a slippery slope are we on here?
1: Oh no, I agree. I mean, but this is this is the conversation you and I have always had about these kinds of broad, open-ended grants of emergency power, right, in statutes that like they're ripe for abuse. I just don't, and and so maybe the right answer is for Congress to actually impose more structural constraints. I'm fine with that. Right. Yeah, I have I, no problem I with that. I, I, I even have, you know, I I, I buy the argument that, two, that reading 264 to authorize an eviction moratorium goes too far. I don't agree with it, but I buy it. Like, yes, but that's such a different conversation from like people writing in Fox News and on other conservative media that Biden is violating his oath of office. No, just stop.
0: Well, I, I think what's going on is a lot. Look, I. I think a lot of what goes on is it has nothing to do with the merits, et cetera. But I think part of it, too, is people misunderstanding and thinking that this is a steel seizure type scenario. of right. Unilateral, just sort of, hey, I wrote an executive order and I'm ordering. I do it. what I want to help and, and Congress. I, and I think the Biden administration is is bears some of the blame for this because of the, the really kind of Keystone Cops-esque way they've rolled this out. But I just. Yeah,
1: I'm sorry. Yeah, no, but, but but I want to contrast this with the conditional sailing order, which is also being currently challenged and is currently blocked by a district judge in Florida, right? Which the conditional sailing order, which is CDC's rules for cruise ships. Oh, well, Bobby, I like, right? I Bobby, Bobby, to me, that is a heartland 264 exercise because that is about preventing the spread of communicable diseases on ships traveling in international waters and entering the United States.
0: Like, yeah, in terms of scope, I completely agree. It's, it's exactly what you'd expect. Um, cdc regulatory action in a pandemic to be touching it's
1: regulating it's regulating international travel if cdc can't do that under 264 then we have to that's a different we yeah, have, I, I, we agree. I agree there's a,
0: there's a spectrum here and and transportation in and out of the country is that's pretty close to the core
1: and uh, across and state
0: lines now i know something you won't like and you Uh-oh. will disagree with and that is
1: that the mets suck
0: there you go the the, the mets can we can we turn to frivolity now and Bid adieu to all our friends who, uh, who are not down with the frivolity. Thanks for listening to up till now.
1: So um, before we do, before we do Mets, can we actually? So as a segue to frivolity, can we talk about books? Yeah, yeah. Let's do books first. Because I actually have had this unusual opportunity to do some reading in the last couple of weeks, and it's been fun. So what did you spend your uh, chits on? So I think I mentioned already that I was reading this new Harlan biography. Um, yeah, yeah. Very apropos, didn't Harlan write Jacobson? Jacobson. Harlan, is that Harlan, is that figure <laughs> in the book? Uh, it does, although not nearly as much as Lochner. Um, so, uh, the Great Dissenter: The Story of John Marshall Harlan, America's Judicial Hero, by Peter S. Kanellis. Um I like this book. Um, I didn't love this book, but I, I enjoyed it and I learned a lot about Harlan. So, for those who like judicial biographies, for those who like reading about this, the old Supreme Court, good read.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, it's certainly for anyone else listening. Would you
1: recommend it? Uh, I guess one you year you might sort be of like one a of summer two. after 1L book, I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, Harlan, I mean, Harlan will figure a lot in your 1L class. Oh, I'm boy, sure. will he?
1: Um, the other two books I want to plug briefly, one I just finished and one I'm just starting, um, there's this wonderful book that's actually a few years old now by Benjamin mm-hmm. Carter Hett um, called The Death of Democracy. Um, and this is about um, basically the sort of the last five administrations in the Weimar Republic. Um, and. And the circumstances that sort of like the mistakes that were made that uh, through which the Nazis were able to democratically come to power. Interesting. Well, like I think that era is
0: always worth going back and revisiting in, in detail.
1: But, but the book that you and I should both read for this podcast and perhaps yeah. even have the author on to talk about at some point um, is a book that dropped yesterday and I'm like three pages in. So it's a little early. Um, this is Spencer Ackerman's new book. It already has a fantastic review in the New York Times from Jen Shalai. Um, so the title is "Reign of Terror: How the 9/11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump." Hmm. <laughs> it sounds like one I might
0: not have picked up off the shelf, but if if you recommend it, I'll definitely read it. So let
1: me let me read some more of it. But I I think I think that's going to give us. I don't know that we're. I mean, it's Spencer, right? Like you and I are going to have our disagreements with him, but I think it's going to be. Interesting fodder for discussion. Well, I will say I agree,
0: really especially in case Spencer's listening, which I doubt, but if he is. Um, Hi, Spencer. Even, even though I definitely very often disagree, we have different views. Um, tons of respect. Yeah. Tons of respect for the work yeah. he does.
1: No, I'm, I'm excited to read this. So I, I tell you what, I will report back. Okay. Yeah. I'm open to the possibility. All right. So let's talk about the dreadful Mets. Oh boy! You know, I thought that I thought
0: maybe the Javi Baez trade was, or the pickup was really going to be a, a nice. You go your way to Cespedes, and that, and now he's got a lower back stiffness, and 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 has kind of after an initial burst, as you often see when people newly arrive. Let's just say he he didn't exactly turn out to be Anthony Rizzo over with the Yankees, who's who completely retitled re- re- himself.
1: Yeah. Like, like I think a lot of Mets fans were flashing back to 2015, where the Mets were underperforming throughout the summer. Where they had a couple of really bad losses in like late July, including a game where Familia blew like a three-run lead in the ninth inning to the Padres. Um, Wilmer Flores is about to be traded, right? And then they get Ioannis Cespedes at the trade deadline, and Cespedes goes on a tear in August, and the Mets get really hot. Um, yeah, this is not, not happening. Been. What's been it's happening? It's not
0: happening, and then everyone else's, most people's bats have been asleep all year. Um, Lindor, that just hasn't—it just hasn't happened. I can't believe what a disappointment that's been. But most importantly, I think it's—it's it's hard to maintain team momentum and mojo after not once, not twice, but I think the third time Degrom went down, mm-hmm. and, and he came back quickly both the other times, but this this time he's not coming back quickly. And you realize y- you had this unique, exciting thing—this you know historic run by a pitcher. And just due to injury, it's it's just been taken away from you. I feel like that sucked a little bit of the the enthusiasm out of the clubhouse. It certainly it certainly is a bummer from a fan perspective because it was. I think all of us were greatly enjoying what he was doing. And yep. ah, it's but I mean, the bummer. Mets are
1: nine and fifteen since the All Star break. They've lost nine of their last eleven. Sweat they've by lost, the Phillies. They've lost seven of eight. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, they're a game over five hundred entering the game and a half that they're playing today. So I just, it's really, I mean. You hate to see it.
0: If it's not them, is, is it the who's gonna take the East? Who's who, I mean, or not or is the
1: East just is it like the NFC
0: East where it's like, you know, who knows? Doesn't matter. No one's going anywhere.
1: I, I think it's the Phillies. I, I think I think you know, if the Phillies really are gonna stay healthy and if everyone's gonna hit the way that they are, and if they're gonna keep getting the starting pitching, mm-hmm. I hate to say it, and I'm gonna owe our colleague Jordan Steiker a lunch, but <laughs> I think I think it's the Phillies.
0: Is it am I mistaken? Is Matt Harvey Now, speaking of the Mets, now pitching for the Phillies and pitching well this
1: year? I I thought it was with Baltimore. Maybe it's Baltimore. Well, that's physically physically close. It's it's Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler is killing it. Well, Zach Wheeler, yeah, he's been
0: killing it. He was
1: incredible. Zach Wheeler's going to win the Cy Young. Incredible. Isn't that amazing that
0: you could say somebody other than Jacob deGrom is going to win the Cy Young? I mean, you could argue that if he can come back and at
1: least give us a month worth at the end, that's it. If he's still throwing the same way... he. Well, I mean, he would have to throw. I mean, he would have to have like six or seven starts. He'd have to win most of them. He'd have to go deep into at least some of those. I just don't yeah, see that happening. going deep. Part's the challenge with the injuries. He's going deep. He's going dirt. Um,
0: Anthony Rizzo Which way really is turn turning Jonesy. Uh, Rizzo really has had an incredible run with the Yankees, and then I'm not talking, I'm not talking about the he's Yankees. knocked out by knocked out by COVID. So you can enjoy. I'm still,
1: that. I'm still not talking about the Yankees. All right, we're not talking about the Yankees. Um uh, on the book front, oh, yeah. wait, we there's something to talk about. What's that? The SEC.
0: Oh, we haven't talked about that. Um, so I'm I am in the very excited camp. I think that it was both. Like, I think that these discussions have to begin from the premise that the era of super conferences. It's been well known amongst those who followed the TV contracts in the money side of all this that super conferences are coming. Um, I think that the move. Was certainly in UT's interest. I am really excited about the games we're now going to have in contrast to the games we've been having. Uh, it will be a lot tougher to compete. Obviously, it's the best conference. Yeah, we can
1: we can lose to Ole Miss instead of Texas Tech. Um, you know, the, the reality <laughs> is you're
0: you're going to have your ups and downs. I actually like our chances of competing into the future better being in the SEC because of the recruitment impact that eventually, that already was being felt by being in the Big 12. There's just a lot of players who want to be on the stage they think will most likely get them the attention they want to need uh, to get to the next level. I think there's a, there's a separate question about how teams need to be able to deliver the goods on training them up, and that's a place where UT has repeatedly failed in recent years, uh, especially with Lyman. Lyman aren't coming here because they're worried, at least they were worried, that we couldn't, Take them to that next level. Uh, I think this is all going to be really helpful. I, I'm excited about it. I am. Now, I'm, I'm really worried. I, at the same time, I'm worried for the other uh, Texas teams and how they're gonna, where they're going to end up. I really hope that they can get parceled out to the, to the other big conferences. Uh, we'll see. There's, there's tons of change coming. This is just the beginning.
1: How do you feel about it? So I think the end of college football, as we know it, is nigh. Um, that was true before Texas and Oklahoma did their thing.
0: It's got a lot of name, image, and likeness, and and free agency, in effect, have already begun to arrive. Hey, you've got a high – Quinn Ewers is skipping his senior season, his high school football team. He's ditching that to prepare himself, to protect himself, and to prepare himself just to get to Ohio State and and start being able to have that name, image, and likeness stuff. I'm not saying that's wrong for him, but the the impact on college football and the professionalization – this UT and OU are symptoms. They're not the causes of this.
1: I, so that's, that's the big thing I wanted to say. The littler thing I wanted to say is um, I think the university is going to come out ahead, right? Like we're doing this for the money. Um, I'm not sh- – I think our recruiting is going to benefit, right, for the reasons you've, you've suggested. Um, you know, we were not exact. I mean, we were not exactly dominating the Big 12 at football. And the SEC is a little better. <laughs> so from a competitive... Think I think it's... Look, I
0: when I was in high school playing Texas high school football, we were in different districts at different times. There's always change every couple of years. Um, and there was a time we played in a very non-competitive district. It was, a, it was basically a cakewalk. Um, it, it was fun to win. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't satisfying as a competitor. And then we moved to a very difficult district it was really hard and we actually you know did much worse and at a certain level i'd rather compete against the best possible competition and 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 there'll be years when you're getting the wrong end of that um but it's more satisfying when you do win those years where you are the better team to have in these better teams and i think from the fan perspective it's just the, there's more rivalries here there's there's uh I'm more excited. Look, this is going to force AM and UT back together for one. That alone makes it worth it. Um, having Alabama here every now and then, having Georgia here every now and then, Florida here every now and then. Tennessee, then. the Orange Bowl. So that I'm especially, you and I were talking about this, UT versus UT, burnt orange versus that, that day cream thing they use.
1: Right. That is
0: a rivalry, rivalry that
1: needs to happen. And I you, think it can happen. You and I were talking about this as I was driving through Knoxville. That's right. What you call it? the the uh, the, the, you other a, the other Orange Bowl or
0: something. You had a good name for it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I love it. Um so anyways, it's The, the, the Shade of Orange Bowl. The shape. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Orange. <laughs> There's a program title that will describe people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. It took us an hour and 14 minutes to get spicy. Yep. All right.
0: So I gotta run. Um, so we should wrap up. And um, we'll figure out the show
1: title later. But guys, we'll we should be back to our regularly scheduled. Um, I like I week. like pearlishness. The, the pearlishness is in the eye of the beholder.
0: How, or how about pearls is, are in the eye. pearls are in the eye of the beholder?
1: That's fine. Um, yeah. All right. Um, uh, all right. He's yeah. at Bobby Chesney. Yeah, we are at NSL Podcast. Um, I don't know if we'll ever see each other again, given the way that COVID is going here in Austin. But at least we have Zencaster. Thank you, Zencaster. All All right. right, everybody. Stay safe out there. Please get vaccinated. Wear a mask. Adios.